Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. This week on Product Love, I talked to Hannah Chaplin, the CEO and co-founder of Receptive. One of the topics we talked about was feature requests. So every day, product managers get feedback and requests from many different sources. So how do they manage that important data? Hannah believes that we should never think about organizing these requests as feature backlogs. So backlogs imply a a never-ending list of unfulfilled requests. I mean, it, it even sounds demoralizing. But incorporating them into a feedback library is interesting. It implies a categorized, accessible resource where you can go to look for ideas when you're building a solution to a particular problem or use case. And I think it can also act as an area product managers can draw upon for inspiration. Feedback libraries are built to be revisited. This all got me to thinking, how do your product teams approach feature requests? Is it something that inspires you or is it an overwhelming list of things that need to be done? Let me know your thoughts on Twitter. You can reach me at eboduck or email me at eboduck at pendo.io. Welcome, lovers of product. Today, I am here with Hannah Chaplin, who is the CEO of Receptive. Hannah, why don't you kick this off by giving us a little overview of your background? Sure. Well, thank you for the invite, Eric. I've been looking forward to this all day, honestly. Very hectic day, so I was looking forward to this. Thank you. (laughs) So, a bit of an overview. So, I really got into kind of software and products and how they were built straight after school. So, I left school and, and took a random job on the reception desk of a software company and I didn't know heaps about it. And then gradually I started to get interested in what everyone else was doing. So I ended up getting into project management within the same business, like working with clients, taking you know requirements, working with dev teams and that role gradually, this is, this is going back a lot of years now, right? But, but that sort of project management role within a software company gradually started to evolve into product management. So I kind of got into things that way. And then since I was 21, I've been starting uh, software companies. And obviously a huge, huge component of that is the, the product itself. So that's what's always really interested me, like working with engineers, building products, working with customers. So pretty much done that for like about 15 years now. So now talk to me a little bit about Receptive. Is this what led you to start Receptive? Was there a a moment maybe where you realized that the software that Receptive is was necessary, like that space? Was there a moment that drove that thought, an aha moment? Yeah, I guess there kind of was. And I think it came with the advent of delivering software in in a SaaS model. So, you know, previously a lot of software was delivered by like a waterfall method. You'd do your requirements capture build software, you test it, go to UAT or user acceptance testing. And there was this whole big kind of waterfall process. And then gradually SaaS came along, right? And it changed everything, like the way you interact with customers, the way that you manage feedback, the way that you've got to understand the data that's coming into your business and how you decide what to build next. And, you know, when you've got a SaaS company and that cadence of that you can deliver software as 
is a lot quicker than it used to be. Customers start to demand a lot more and start to shape your product a lot more. And I realized just by doing a day-to-day job, like gradually had this realization that, you know, you can really use that voice of the customer to help guide your product and make it the best it can be. So it was definitely that switch. I remember it very vividly, that switch into SaaS was like, ah, okay, there's a real gap and a real need to kind of gather feedback data properly and use it to the best of your ability. And, And that's where the idea for Receptive came from, really. So talk to us a little bit about what Receptive is for those who don't know. That's actually really, as I was saying that, I was thinking, hang on a minute. Yeah, so that's a really good point. So Receptive solves a huge pain point that every software company has, which is essentially what should we be working on? What product improvements should we be putting into our software and what should we be working on next? And where Receptive as a piece of software comes in is that it helps take qualitative information from customers teams internally in the market as well, a lot through the sales team, and then it turns it into actionable data. So some examples are Receptive can tell you like what is the top priority request from your customers? What's the most valuable request in in terms of MRR? What are the biggest pain points around the design of my product or a particular product area? So it's about bringing all that data into like a system of record for product teams to work from so that they can build a product roadmap that works for the business, but also for the the customers as well. Yeah. And I imagine, you know, part of that is trying to go through and understand what feedback should be acted on and what shouldn't. And you've written a lot about this concept about how the customer isn't always right. So in an era where we're always so customer focused, what prompted you to write this and, and what does customer centric actually mean to you? Sure. That's a really good question. I know it's I quite like writing controversial blog posts because I think it's always interesting to explore things from another angle. And and from talking to a lot of product teams and product managers, I see people are often divided into these two camps. There's product teams who are very customer focused in that they take feature requests from customers and they build what customers want and they do that a lot. And then the other half of the time, I'll talk to product teams and they're like very very against that they're like this is my product this is my roadmap customers can't tell me what to build and and I really think that there's a a middle ground there that works for for everyone so the customer's not always right but it doesn't mean that you shouldn't listen and understand their pain points so to me being customer centric isn't about reacting to every request that you get from a customer but it's about giving customers a a good experience and recognizing they're part of the team. And there's loads of different ways you can do that around your product and and your roadmap. And like with feedback in particular, I mean, one of the first things you can do is just have a good process in place, welcome feedback from your customers, make sure that it's going to your product team so they understand the voice of the customer, and then they're empowered to build something that works not just for the customer but for the business as well so really I've, I've written a lot about doing that it's about that it's that balancing act and I just think that you don't have to be particularly in this day you don't have to be kind of anti-customer feedback or, or totally you know just doing what the customer says there, there is that middle ground and that's for me is one of the, the key things that a product manager should be doing so talk to me about you know why having a good product feedback experience is important and you know also you know, sometimes it's a sensitive subject, right? How do you make sure it's a positive and an expiring experience for the team? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's really emotional, isn't it? Particularly when I think a lot of the time, if you don't have a good process in place, 
customers just get very frustrated and they end up putting loads of tickets into the support team. We, we see that a lot. The customers don't know what to do with the feedback they've got and then they'll get upset and it, it can be very difficult. And then I think being on the product side, I used to find it really frustrating when I couldn't give a customer a straight answer because they had no visibility of what else we were working on. So I think it's, you know, it's especially important to, to product organisations that they handle it well to make it. Like you say, it's, it's an opportunity to make feedback, you know, like a really positive experience. I think now as well, with the way SaaS markets are going, there's a lot of, you know, there's so many SaaS companies now. And I think there's a real opportunity to set yourself apart, essentially, by helping customers and, and making that experience really like nice for them. And, you know, other companies I talked to about this, like one of the simplest things you can do is just set expectations up front. That, that's immediately more positive than what most companies do now. And what I mean by that is a bit like um, with product support, just to communicate to your customers what to do with feedback when they've got it, how you handle it and how you're going to communicate back. There's little things you can do like that that make a, a really, really big difference. I think the second thing that you can do to make feedback positive for the customer as well is just to again it's about adding transparency and communication so instead of taking feedback and letting it disappear into this black hole and never contacting your customer again you know give them a, a bit of an update on what you are working on and, and tell them why you can do that through a roadmap you can you know it can be a conversation and then just communicate back so if something they've asked you about has been worked on just let them know so it's all simple things that you can put in place and obviously the challenge of that I think is is at scale you know if you've got thousands of customers and thousands of bits of feedback and that's that's what really interests me and that's what Receptive's there for it's to close that communication loop help customers know what to expect and then in turn you're helping empower the product team as well so you can absolutely make it positive I think we've all had bad experience have you ever put feedback in and just heard nothing that happens to me a lot oh yeah all the time (laughs) It's frustrating. It feels frustrating as a customer though, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I generally want to feel like at least I've been acknowledged. Exactly. That's exactly it. That is exactly it. And, and the experience of putting feedback in and hearing nothing versus getting an acknowledgement saying, thank you. This is what happens to your feedback. This is how we deal with it. It takes a lot of the negative emotion out of the situation straight away because the customer is and, and should feel like they're, you know, you're, you're part of the team. They're helping shape what you're doing so I think the least you can do is add some transparency in there yeah absolutely you know one of the things you wrote about too as far as how to get that feedback mm-hmm. was this book called the mom test right and I oh, think yeah. you, that is a basis for talking about how you ask questions to get feedback from customers and prospects can you tell us a little bit about that yeah, it's, it's a really neat book uh, for anyone who's not read it. And it was especially instrumental when we first started uh, Receptive because we're in the situation where we're like, right, we've got this idea. Is it going to work? So, you know, we went through a lot of customer interviews and I just wanted to make sure we weren't asking bad questions. So someone recommended the book to me. And it's all about just making sure, like say, ask, that you're asking the right things. And the, the book talks about asking about people's like day to day instead of like a, an idea. So talking through like use cases and pain points instead of pushing your product or your idea onto them. It's about asking specific questions about how they work and from the past instead of, you know, hand wavy stuff in the future. And I think the biggest takeaway for me as well was like just shutting up, like stop talking, Hannah, and and listen. And it really is amazing how if you're quiet and ask open-ended questions, you learn so, so much. 
and I think I've really taken that and and used it with um, you know what we do with receptive and feedback. So instead of so as a, as a great example is I think a lot of the time product teams will go to customers and say what features do you want, and that's that never leads to anything good because you never get to the bottom of the drivers behind that feature request. So you can have five customers all tell you they want the same feature but I can guarantee that there's five different reasons and five different use cases and five different pain points so part of what the mom test taught me was to to like ask good questions so again an example with the feedback thing is we, we'd never ask customers for feature requests we ask you know what's your pain point do you have a workaround how would this help you in your day-to-day and again it goes back to what I touched on earlier it's about empowering the product team so if you're collecting like pain points and use cases from the customer, that helps the product team to design really good solutions that work for the customer and for the business. And I think that's key. It's not just about doing whatever the customer asks for. But yeah, it's great. So I definitely recommend that book if anyone's not read it. Have you read it? Have you come across that before? I have not read it. I'll have to add it to the reading list. I'll send it to you, Eric. It's, uh, it's a good one. That sounds great. So as as part of this too, you put together, you wrote your own ebook, right? About, well, first you did some product roadmap research from what I understand and turned that into an ebook. Yeah. Can you talk to us about why you started it and what your biggest takeaways were? Sure. So like research is something I'm really keen on doing all the time because it, it really does, again, from a, with my product manager hat on, it just really helps inform where the market's going, what the trends are. It helps us understand how product teams operate today and what frustrates them so the roadmap one was was really key for us because I think it's a source of a lot of contention some you know some people really love roadmaps some people hate them and I just find there's a a really diverse set of opinions on them um do do you find that as well do you ever talk about roadmap stuff with people I I think there's a lot of diverse opinions there's a lot of different structures and some of them become really detailed and really uh far-reaching, meaning from a time period. And I'm like, how do you know what you're going to be doing in three years, right? That kind of yeah, stuff. Exactly, ex- exactly that. So th- the idea was that we wanted to be able to understand what people are doing and then help facilitate discussion around best practices. So I had to look back through the report, actually, and there's some things that, that shocked me. One was uh, like 80% of product teams put like hard delivery dates on the product roadmap. And I've always been like, no, don't do that. I think there's a big difference between an internal kind of, that's project planning to me, right? So I think there's a big difference between having an internal project plan and driving towards dates. That's always a really healthy thing. But when it comes to sharing hard delivery dates with your customers or sales team, and you're talking about things that are three years out, I think you can get yourself in a very sticky situation very quickly. The other thing, like, I didn't know this, like people, like half of people, we asked hundreds of companies, nearly half said that in, investors have like a really big sway on roadmap decisions. And that, that did surprise, does that surprise you? That surprised me. Yeah, that, that would surprise me a lot, especially, especially when investors might not be the domain space experts, right? And a lot of them come from financial backgrounds. Yeah, so so I was quite surprised at that one. And then the, the other big takeaway really was that there's really very few companies who share a roadmap with the customers and prospects. And I think that's a real shame because I think done in the right way, the roadmap is like, that's where you can really get people excited about what's coming up. And especially in the sales, you know, from a sales point of view, if you can like sell the vision, not only of where you are today, but like where the company is going, I think that can be like a really 
really powerful thing to give your sales team. If you can arm your sales team with that information, I think it can do wonders uh, for getting customers or potential customers excited about where your your company is going. So the big takeaway for me really is is what I've always advocated, which is that a roadmap is is essentially it's a communication tool. There's you know project management is where your date should live. You know product teams can really use roadmaps to communicate things and keep people aligned which is why like here we have different roadmaps for for different teams we have a roadmap specifically for customers we've got one that's reported up to the c-suite we have one that's specifically for for sales team and i think you know spend it it doesn't take much time to put together but just putting that little slightly different lens on your roadmap for those different people can have a really really positive impact yeah, so I mean, I want to dig into one thing you said, which is the reluctancy to share roadmaps. Do you think companies are reluctant to share roadmaps because they're worried about them getting in competitors' hands? Yeah, there's definitely some of that. I think, I mean, we've always got the option to keep, like our, our main roadmap is is just shared with customers. And that's why, like I say, we we have a different view on, on that roadmap for sales team and so on. And we don't actually share anything publicly. So, yeah, I think it depends a lot on the product and the space and how competitive the market is. But I think that's that's certainly one concern. But I think the point to stress is, is done the right way. I, I wouldn't be without the roadmap. It's, it really is is good for keeping people on board with, with what you're trying to achieve. So let's talk about some of the other stuff we talked about or hinted at. Prioritization, right? Should product managers always be prioritizing? Never. <laughs> That's such a controversial one. So I'm quite opinionated on this. Are you ready? <laughs> I am ready. Okay, okay. So um, I think product managers can be really guilty of like micromanaging, especially when it comes to prioritization. So they'll look at all the feedback they've got and they will prioritize. So they'll take everything customers have said and take stuff like their investors or whoever have said, and then they'll prioritize them. And I think that's a really dangerous position to get yourself into because as one product manager, you're only one person. And the way that a customer views your, you know, what's important to them and why, and the way that a salesperson will prioritize is so, so different. So what we do is we actually put that first piece of prioritization in the hands of the individual users. So here, our sales team, uh, we've got these little sliders and they use these sliders to tell the product team, hey, this is really important. This is blocking all these deals for me versus, you know, a product improvement or a feature request, which is just a nice to have. And it's exactly the same with customers. Customers will have requests and product improvements that you know bordering on a deal breaker that really matter to them and they'll have things that they're that's just nice to have so as a product manager if you're trying to make a decision and prioritize for all these different groups a it's not an effective use of your time and b the what you'll come up with is just wrong so to really encourage and push product teams to think about how they can kind of put that first piece of prioritization in the hands of the actual users what that does is it puts you in a lovely position. So now I can like just sit and look at my reports. I can go, okay, what's the top priority to my top paying customers in America? And I just have that data and it makes such a difference. And genuinely, the first time we asked customers to prioritize their requests versus just voting on them, the two data sets are completely different. And the things that were top priority to our customers weren't the big features that we thought they wanted. It was like a raft of just little 
improvements in like the day-to-day workflows and it was just eye-opening so I'm an absolute advocate for product teams prioritizing at a higher level and not trying to prioritize every tiny thing do you know what I mean (laughs) yeah yeah I know what you mean and I I imagine the concept of you know your questions your whys fit into this or like Uh you know I talked with Ryan Singer and he talked about products as uh, functions right you take an input situation and the product transforms it to an output situation do you think about things that way yeah, I guess so. Yeah. So the product team are like taking these inputs and then it's your job to design the right output. And I think if you're trying to, as a product manager, if you're trying to guess what's important to all these different groups and, you know, when you start scaling the the number of groups of people you have to deal with and stakeholders, it's just, it's not a job you can do on your own. And, you know, you as a human can't consume that amount of data and make sense of it. But, you know, that's where having real data behind things like feedback and, and product usage becomes so powerful for product teams to, to be able to get their hands on. Yeah, yeah. And I, I can imagine when you start prioritizing the little things, you run into issues like, say, you know, the sales team really wants a car. So you give them, you know, one feature, which happens to be the wheels and customers want a jet. So you give them an engine and, you know, your your internal team wants a bike and you give them handlebars and you try to put that whole thing together and you have a mess, right? Exactly. Yeah. So that's why it's important to, as a product manager, to be aware of these different groups, the customer demand, the team demand and the market demand. That's that's how I always look at building a product. You've got those three groups. And, and as a product manager, you're doing a good job when you understand the goals of the business and you, you balance and, and kind of change those inputs accordingly. That's I think that's the art of product management for me. So, you know, capturing all this data means backlog, right? Or Or does it? No, this <laughs> I've got so many opinions today. I would, I would genuinely, I would ban product backlog as a thing. I don't, I don't think people should talk about product backlogs anymore. It, it, it has just so many negative connotations. I, I think the actual like dictionary definition of of a backlog is an accumulation of unfinished work. Now, that's not very inspiring, is it? Like, no. Not to me, but no, it really, no, I really don't like it. It's not. It just sounds miserable. So we work with a lot of software companies and product teams. And and instead of a product backlog, we talk to them about creating a library. I think a library is a really, really nice analogy. And the reason we do that is because a library should be where, so again, coming in from a kind of feedback or feature request point of view, is where everything should go. So if you have all your data centralized in your library and organized, then it means as a product team, again, it's about putting you in control because, you know, like um, information that you received three years ago might be relevant in like today. It might not have been relevant three years ago, but by building a library of information, it, it gives you the power to then go in and pick and choose what you need. So instead of a big raft of unfinished things, you should see product feedback and requests as building this uh, big store of information. So just an example, like like practically in, in my day to day job, we we're going to do a redesign for uh, the front end of the app. So what I did is because we've centralized all our feedback and it's all prioritized and in order, went in and looked at, you know, where are the pain points for our customers when it comes to design? What do the team think could be done better? Is there anything, any sticking points in sales where the product's just not quite doing it on the design front? And, you know, there, there was information there that was key to us designing a good solution that we've gathered over three or four years. And I think when people for you, the product backlog is a, is a huge, never-ending list of things to do. It sounds pretty miserable and it makes you feel like you're behind all the time. And 
I like the library analogy because it's about being in control and picking the data up when you need to use it instead of just trying to you know, tick off this big never-ending list of Trello cards or whatever. So there's a couple of things out. It's a bit of a terminology thing for me, and it's also a bit of an operational thing. Like if your product feedback isn't all getting into one place, you're never going to be able to use and understand it properly. So, yeah, it's a couple of things going on in there, really. Yeah, I do like that analogy of a library. I think it's very apropos. Good, cool. But yeah, I think I think it's a switch that needs to be made, and uh, you know, a lot of product teams are that they're getting there with it, and I, I just think it's a lot more kind of helpful way to work. So let, let's turn our discussion to product teams. What makes a great or effective product team, and and what makes a great product leader? Yeah, so that's a good question. I think I think the biggest change I've seen in kind of the last couple of years really is I think you know truly effective product teams and product leaders wear a couple more hats really so instead of just focusing on the product I think you become an exceptional and effective team when you think about what the business needs as well and that's not you know that's especially true in companies that are going down the the product-led growth route you've got to be focused on the product but I think understanding like the vision of the business and helping create the product that supports the goals of the company and balancing that with you know keeping customers happy and making sure they're achieving their goals is that's what makes a really effective product team I think and a couple of other things really I think um, back to the data thing again like I've seen the profession evolve from you know a lot of road mapping decisions being made on gut feeling to being more data informed and I choose my words carefully there I don't I struggle a bit with data driven. I think data informed is a really nice way to look at things. So you're taking the data and then you're still making good decisions based on the goals of the company. So data is a key one. Testing and iteration as well. I think a lot of product teams can feel like they have to get it right first time. I'm very much like, here's our hypothesis. Let's test it and iterate. I think, you know, a lot of great product teams do that very, very effectively. And the final thing that I think, takes a product team from being a good product team to being exceptional is it's that customer experience piece again for me so about the transparency and communication with the customer base um, and with teams internally actually but then actually you know talking to customers and prospects as well like not hiding behind emails and roadmaps and secondhand conversations from other teams I'd, I'd strongly encourage anyone in product to muscle your way into customer calls with the customer success team for example I do that quite frequently. And the things you learn, you know, from hearing information firsthand, it just helps every time. That's quite a few things, but I think they're key for me. The communication, using data and uh, being able to balance the demands and, and the goals of the business with what customers are asking for. So tell me about how you hire then. How do you hire for product managers? Definitely like a bit of a, a business head on them. I, I particularly like people who've like started a company before or worked for a small team before just because they have that awareness there so definitely look for that and the second main thing really is people who can just think for themselves so we, when we're hiring we, we kind of run some tests with people to see if they can like take on a task and run with it I'm, I'm very much about you know not micromanaging people but you know setting the direction the strategy and, and letting them kind of do whatever needs to be done to you know meet that goal and I think they're the two things that have really stood out over the years like people who've got that business awareness and who can really like own things and, and not be micromanaged they just they flourish and, and do well like every single time 
I know that's different at different scales and different sizes of team and that sort of thing. But I think in kind of an early to mid-stage business, that sort of temperament just works really well. So now, not only are you a product person, but you're a tech CEO, right? So what's surprised you the most about being a CEO in a technical software company? Oh my gosh, that's a good, that's a good question. No one's ever asked that, Eric. That's a good one. Um, what surprised me the most? I think it's probably just the like the scale of the things you've got to do and be able to understand. So while I'm primarily a technical and product person, you're not going to be a good tech CEO if you don't understand the fundamentals of like how to run sales or how to run customer success effectively. So I, I tend to kind of make sure I stay really close with the leaders of each of those kind of teams to make sure I am doing the right things. And, you know, that, that can be quite difficult sometimes when you've got, you know, an awful lot, lot going on. But yeah, I think, I think like the breadth of knowledge you've got to have in a lot of different areas is like, it's one of the best things about being a tech CEO, but it's, I kind of, I guess that took me by surprise a, a little bit. It's like going from being a specialist to a generalist, I, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. What, what was your personal area of biggest challenge? Like what area challenged you the most moving from product into being a CEO? Oh man, sales. So I did the first kind of 18 months, two years of sales at Receptive and it was like a massive learning curve. Um, I was always ringing people up and being, what about this? What about this? But it taught me so many things doing that. Like anyone starting a business, I, I don't think you should outsource sales from day one. It was like instrumental to like getting the knowledge from talking to those day one prospects and then feeding it back into the product is what got receptive uh, moving so quickly. But sales was honestly a, a real struggle for me. It's I think I'm very good at getting people excited about the product, but there was a lot of things that I didn't do well to start with, like the deal making bit I had to get. I've just found that difficult. I found that difficult, to be honest. But yeah, so I was, I was really, really grateful when we got someone who could kind of help and support with that. But I wouldn't change doing those first couple of years because you just learn so much. Yeah, I think it's important for CEOs and for founders in general to get pulled into the sales process early, you know, when the company's small, you get a feel for yeah. things that you don't get if you're not. And, yeah. and you get a respect for, you know, this, the process around sales, the process it has to go through, and also the actual closing, the negotiating of deals and getting them done, right? Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, and I think that's why I said earlier, like, I think product people should make sure they spend time, you know, listening to sales conversations or visiting prospects as well. Because it, it was through spending the time with the prospects that I really started to truly understand the pain points of the different personas and then take what we'd learned and then create a solution. And that like getting that information secondhand off a seasoned salesperson, just it wouldn't have been as effective. It wouldn't have happened as quickly. And I don't think I would have ever really truly understood those pain points properly so yeah i'd recommend it for sure so talk to me about things you see in the future what about developing trends in product management and the product management community sure so two things spring to mind i think the first one i keep going on about is like the importance of the business again especially product like growth which is a way a lot of SaaS companies are, are going a lot a lot of software companies are, are kind of going down that route and I think that kind of awareness of of what the business needs and what the business is doing is definitely a a change from where product teams might, you know, used to kind of manage projects a, a little bit more and not have to worry about that so much. And and the second thing I've seen like over the last 
again, maybe the last couple of years, especially in, in smaller companies, is I think product teams are embracing the voice of the customer more. I'm, I'm seeing a lot more product teams having a job role within them called voice of the customer or feedback manager. And I think that's just because, again, people are, are recognizing that giving customers a really good experience is a competitive advantage, essentially. It makes the product better. It makes the business better. So why wouldn't you pay attention to it? So there are a couple of things I've seen quite recently that like come along and that are new. What, what's, it, what's your take on it? Oh, wow. I mean, I think there's lots of things I see developing, you know, in product management. I think, you know, SaaS has changed a lot about how product management is done, especially if you look at software, just because you're now in this area of recurring revenue means that you always have to be constantly, you know, showing value, right? You don't get reoccurring mm-hmm. revenue unless you're delivering value on a reoccurring basis. So I think this, you know, the concept of a product has gotten a lot broader, where not only do you have to have, you know, the core product, but you have to make sure you're educating customers about how to accomplish tasks effectively and all the data that goes into that. So I could go on for a long time, but yeah, it's, it's definitely one of those, isn't it? There's, uh, there's so many things. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I think product management is at an interesting stage where it's, it's definitely moved from, you know, the art it was before to more of a craft now. And I, I don't think it's quite a science yet, but you know, it's getting closer to that. Yeah, so, uh, definitely. what about you personally? Let's talk about you as Hannah. What's your favorite product? Software product or any product? <laughs> it could be any product. You could pick one of each if you want. You know, I'm pretty flexible. Oh, okay, okay. I like that. Okay, that's a, so. Someone asked this the other day actually about the software side, and and the one product that's really impressed me recently is Monzo. Have you heard of Monzo? It's a bank bank app. No, have not. Very cool company. It's just you know. I don't know about in the US, but in the UK, banking can be, it's just, it can be really painful. So as an example, when I've traveled on with work to the States, I've like used my usual bank card and all my bank accounts get frozen. Whereas Monzo is, it's a customer centric thing for me. It's all about like user experience. They're a, a really good example of getting the voice of the customer into their product roadmap. And they just do little things like the next time I went on a business trip with Monzo, they're like, hey, you're in America. Is this on business or are you you're like on holiday? And it's like, I'm on business. And like, great. So you're there and it's all fine. And we'll make sure we tag everything as a business expense for you. And like that experience just could not have been more different. It was like genuinely helpful rather than horrible where you're on the phone for hours trying to unfreeze your bank account. So I think Monzo is a great example of a a really nice app and a company that's really like changing how, you know, a very old industry works and operates. So Monzo, great. My other favorite product. Oh, I'm not, I don't know if I can say this. It's my bike. I love my bike. I think it's amazing. The engineering that (laughs) that goes into a bike um, is incredible. It's a mountain biking. It's my, my big de-stressing thing. So How's what that? makes you love the bike? <laughs> and what, what is the bike? So I've got a ghost bike, which is uh, it's made by a German company. Just, oh, yeah. It's just, again, it's, it's user experience, right? Every, everything about the bike is geared up. So when you go out, you have loads and loads of fun. So, yeah, that's my favorite. That's my favorite physical product. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. What's well, your one favorite? Final- my my favorite. I have yeah, lots. On, of I want to know yours now, Eric. Come on. <laughs> this interview is turning around here. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny because I'll pick a product that's not something I own right now, 
And it's just interesting because whenever a conversation comes up and I'm in a restaurant or at a bar and I'm talking about Tesla, you know, the, the car, it always, someone randomly pops over from another table from the other side of the bar and says, oh, I heard you talking about Tesla. I own one. Yeah. It's the greatest thing. I mean, it just happens all the time. And they tell me how great their experience is. The brand loyalty, like how much people really love that car, their vehicle is just amazing. And the only other time I hear people raving about their cars in the same way is the few instances where I've talked with people who've had Ferraris, right? And they talk about it in the same way where there's just like this, there's this happiness, this joy that overtakes their face. <laughs> so I think you know, that's, to have that kind of strength of brand, I think is wonderful. And I hear that a lot on the, on the Tesla car side. So I think that's really cool. So that's definitely a, a product I love. Yeah. So. That's really cool. Is that we've got a, a big Tesla fan in in the office, and they are like, they don't have a Tesla, but you're right. There's they have a lot of passion around Tesla, but it's just, yeah. I think it's you know it's it's the vision, isn't it, of the company and what they're trying to achieve, and just yeah, I can yeah, see exactly some of the attention to detail and just making you feel yeah. like they're trying to build a car for you. As I don't know, I don't know. It's hard to say not being the owner, just hearing people rave about them, but. I think, you know, my next car is going to have to be a Tesla now at this point, just, just because of that. Yeah, so. definitely. <laughs> I'll be checking. <laughs> <laughs> definitely. So one final question for you today. How about three uh-huh. words to describe yourself? That is such a horrible question. <laughs> I so love this question. Oh, do you actually have, oh my goodness. Can I turn it around and ask you? No, I won't do that. Um, yeah, that's a difficult question. I asked my kids this over tea last night and they just said really offensive things. <laughs> so I can't repeat any of those. They took it as the opportunity to have a, a dig at me. Three words, okay. From a work point of view or anything? I think anything is good. It's who you are. Who's Hannah? Okay. Not very serious is three words. Um, yeah, uh, this is really hard. Um, I do like a laugh in the office. I think it diffuses a lot of situations and helps an awful lot. I think I'm a very driven person. I'm very driven when the, I find something I really like doing, like like, like SAS, like feedback. Don't ask me why, but that is like a big, big passion. So I'd say I'm very driven. Good fun in the office and... A third one. I can't think of a third one. Can we do two? I can't count. I think two is fine. Two is good. Yay! What a horrible question. <laughs> Amazing. Well, thank you, Hannah. This was a blast. I greatly enjoyed it. Good. Thank you so much, Eric. I'll, I'll look forward to listening, uh, to listening back. This has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on productcraft.com an online magazine by and for product people.